There was this uh, story of this little boy and this little girl uh, who uh, the little boy had had a, uh, a life-threatening disease and, and he was able to recover from it a couple of years uh, beforehand. But then his little sister had the same disease and they both had the same blood type and it was a rare blood type. And since the little boy was able to be the donor, the doctor turned to the little boy and said, uh, and let's just call him Johnny, Johnny, would you give your blood to your sister Mary? And the little boy hesitated. His lower lip started to quiver just a little bit, just a moment. And then he turned to the doctor and he smiled and he said, sure, for my sister, I'll do it. Well, soon the two children uh, were wheeled into the hospital room and Mary, who was pale and thin, and Johnny, who was uh, robust and healthy, uh, neither of them spoke, but when their eyes met, the little boy and the little girl, Johnny grinned at his little sister. As the nurse inserted the needle into little Johnny's arm, Johnny's smile began to fade, and he watched the blood begin to flow from his arm uh, through the tube. And with the ordeal almost over, he turned with a trembling, slightly shaky, broken voice to the doctor and said, Doctor, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize that what Johnny thought he was doing and why he hesitated for that moment is that he thought that he was going to have to give his life for his sister in order for his sister to live. He thought by giving up his blood that it meant giving up his own life. In that brief moment, though, that he made that great decision, Johnny fortunately didn't have to die to save his sister. However, each of us has a condition more serious than Mary's condition, and it required our Lord Jesus to not just give us his blood, but to give us his life. How many is thankful for that this morning? So today we finish our series on the feasts, Jesus and the feasts, and, and we've looked for the last several weeks of the different feasts of uh, 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 Passover and unleavened bread, of first fruits, of Pentecost, and then last week we looked at trumpets. We looked at the first one, tabernacles. Actually, we looked at the seventh one on tabernacles at the end of September when we had our Feast of Tabernacles. So I flipped it around a little bit. I put a little bit of the cart before the horse but you are here for that and you'll understand and be able to do the little adjustment in your mind. So today is the sixth of the seven feasts, but it's our last one that we're going to cover. And it's called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. Now this day is a sober and serious day. It's a profound and important day. The last couple of weeks we've looked at feasts that were more simply exercised and, and recognized and honored. Today is going to be some very involved and detailed preparation and activity that God required for the Feast of Atonement. It's a, day that, it's a day that required much preparation from the priest. It required much preparation from the actual um, sacrifices. And it also had some preparation of what we would know as something called the scapegoat. How many ever heard of that phrase? the scapegoat. We're going to look and find out where that actually originated from this morning. It was a day that was set aside once a year to present to a holy God sacrifices and ask a holy God to forgive the people of their sins from the preceding year. 
It was a day that required blood given by an innocent for the guilty of many, just like that little boy Johnny thought that he was going to do for his little sister. It required a covering. It required an atonement. I want you to say with me the word covering this morning, would you? Covering. Because that's what atonement is. That's what this represents. And we're going to look at this word covering today. And hopefully by the end of this, you'll understand what Jesus has done for us in a much more profound and thankful way on this week that we honor and recognize thanksgiving to God for his many blessings in our life. Turn with me, if you will, to Leviticus chapter 23, and we're going to start in verse 26. This is the chapter where all of the feasts that God has appointed uh, was delineated and detailed out. And so we're going to be looking this morning at what God said about the feast of, or the day of atonement. The Lord said to Moses, the tenth day of the seventh month, remember the seventh month was the uh, Jewish holy month. The tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day because it's the day of atonement. When atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. Those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from their people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Wherever you live, it is a day of Sabbath rest for you. And you must deny yourselves. From the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening, you, to are, you are to observe your Sabbath. Now, the Day of Atonement is the English translation from the Hebrew word Yom Kippur. How many has ever heard of Yom Kippur? Of course you have. Kippur is a Hebrew word meaning to cover. There's that word again. Kippur means to cover. It specifically refers to an atonement to God covering sin covering our sin. Yom Kippur fell on the 10th day of the month of Tishri, the seventh Hebrew month, and it was observed between the Feast of Trumpets on Tishri 1 and the Feast of Tabernacles, which begins on Tishri 15. It was a week-long celebration, the Tabernacles was. The Day of Atonement is all about covering. Though it's listed among the seven feasts, and we think of the word feast as if this coming Thursday, for example, we're going to get together and have a feast, aren't we? We're going to celebrate with family and friends on Thanksgiving with the big spread and all the special food that is put out once a year, special occasions on a feast. The Day of Atonement was nothing at all like that. It was nowhere near a feast. In fact, it was a very somber and serious day. It was on this day that the Lord said at least three times in the text that I just read that you must deny yourselves even to the point of if you don't deny yourselves, then those that don't will be cut off. It was that serious. The day was devoted to fasting. The day was devoted to repenting of the previous year's sins. And there's three passages that give instructions for the high priest. And if you can look at these later, I'll give them to you very quickly if you're a quick writer. Leviticus chapter 16, you can read that later. Leviticus chapter 23, which we just read, verses 26 32 and finally numbers chapter 29 verses 7 through 11 
these scriptures were given to the priests, these instructions were given to the priests as to what they were to do. So I always like to look at the practical, the prophetic, and the personal significance of these feasts in every week that we've looked at this. So let's look first at the practical significance of this Day of Atonement for the nation of Israel. Now this day involves a detailed preparation leading up to it, a specific presentation of a sacrifice, and then a scapegoat. Let's look at the preparation for the sacrifice first. Now the service for Yom Kippur followed the morning service in the afternoon. On this one day and on this only day of the year, each year the high priest was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies and stand before God. Now to understand what the Holy of Holies is, let me give you a very quick snapshot so you can understand this layout of this temple that God established. We have what we know as the outer courts. There's the outer courts, the inner courts, and the Holy of Holies. The outer courts is what we're experiencing right now as we come together in God's presence. But also the outer courts can be any time. You could be behind the steering wheel. You could be making a meal. You could be at your work. You could be at school. You could be praising the Lord anywhere. It's the outer courts of relationship with God. It's a wonderful place to be, amen? How many is thankful for the outer courts of God? That we can praise the Lord, right? No matter where we are. But also there's, the, there's a place of an inner courts. The inner courts is where the priest made regular sacrifices. Now that's some place that we don't necessarily, a lot of us go to. And it's certainly not something that I'm, I'm an exception to the rule. But it's a decision that we make. Just because I'm the pastor doesn't mean that I go to the inner courts all the time. I'm a Christian and I'm a believer in Christ just like you are. And we all have the option to dance around the outer courts, kind of the outskirts of God's presence, or we can press in, right? And we can get into the inner courts where, where there's real life change that starts taking place. And by the way, we're all New Testament priests here. So I'm talking about the Old Testament priest who was one guy that was appointed to do it. But as the veil has been torn from top to bottom, when Jesus said it's finished, we all are high priests of the Most High God. And we can all do what I'm describing here. And not only can we, we must. We must press in. So we go from the outer courts and we kind of dance around the outskirts. And that's kind of like everybody can do that. And we kind of, that's what, see, if we get too close to God, he's going to start showing us some stuff that, that we need to kind of work on. And so we like to stay as far away from that holiness, as far away from that conviction, as far away from that presence as possible. Because when we do, the very nature of God's holiness is going to expose things in our life. And we don't want to change. Our flesh doesn't want to. But the spirit of, of God in us cries out and says, you must be more like Christ. You must be holy as I am holy. So we go from the outer courts to the inner courts, and that's a great place to be. And as we get closer to the Lord and we make our sacrifices to the Lord, we make a daily sacrifice. I will bring the sacrifice of praise. I will sacrifice my life to the Lord. I will give of myself to Him. There's a sacrifice that's involved with that. And we don't like the sacrifice because our flesh wants to hold on. But we get into the inner courts and we sacrifice as priests of the Most High God. Most of us don't want to do that, but he's drawing us. He's calling us. He's requiring us to do that as New Testament priests. And then comes the one place, the Holy of Holies. It's that once a year place to represent the people before God of their sins where there's a dying that takes place. And very few Christians really get there. But I trust that everybody in this place would be the exception to that rule and that we would move into a place we would daily pick up our cross and die to ourselves and get into that place of holy of holies where true life 
change takes place. There's no better place to be and there's no better place that we need to be than in the Holy of Holies. But as we look at what the high priest did that one time a year, since this priest was to stand before God in the Holy of Holies, think about it. He's going from the outer courts to the inner courts to this room that's a little cubicle. It's just a little tiny place. It's not big at all. There's room for him. There's room for the altar. And that's kind of it. And the artifacts and the altar. No room for anything else. And by the way, in God's presence, there's no room for anybody else but you and God. And even then, there's no room for you because we die to ourselves. But if we bring everything into the Holy of Holies, you're going to say, I'm sorry, I can't have any of the gods before me. You're going to have to get those things removed. So we get into the Holy of Holies, as the priest did. It was crucial that this priest be ritually clean and qualified for his duties. This sounds very tedious, and I'm so thankful that we don't have this in the New Testament age of grace. But to ensure that he, that he would be qualified and clean. The high priest was required to leave his home one week before Yom Kippur to stay in the high priest's quarters inside the temple. So off he went to be living in the temple. And during this week, he was twice sprinkled with the ashes of a red heifer just in case he'd become unclean. Now we're going to look at this red heifer in just a few moments and the symbolism of it. And this was this cleansing process for ceremonial defilement. You're going to find that in Numbers 19. I gave you that scripture a few moments ago. Also, all of his duties for Yom Kippur were rehearsed. He had to make sure he did everything right at the right time in the right way. He needed to be absolutely certain that he did everything in the prescribed manner because his very life depended on it. Now, any other day, the high priest would wash his hands and his feet before performing his duties as just a regular ritual. But on Yom Kippur, he had to totally immerse himself in this special golden bath. Any other day of sacrifice, he would wear only his priestly purple robes that was hemmed with tiny golden bells. And over the top of his robe, he wore this golden breastplate, which, by the way, was studded with 12 precious stones as a reminder that he represented the 12 tribes of Israel before God. But on this day of Yom Kippur, he would change into, the, into garments woven from white linen as he stood before God in the Holy of Holies that he would never wear that garment again. It was a one and out. Once dressed in his priestly purple robes on that particular day, he would wash his hands and his feet for the morning service, the regular sacrifice, and then he, in the inner courts, and then he would return to his chambers... And he would change into this white linen garment. And on this day, he changed clothes five times. And each time, he would wash his hands, he would wash his feet, he would remove his garments, he would totally immerse his body in that golden bath, and he would put on the change of clothes, and then he would wash his hands and his feet again. Five times he did that. This ceremonial cleansing was vital to standing before God as an outward symbol of purity and reverence. But by the way, outwardly is not necessarily what matters in this. It matters, but there's also an inward thing that needs to happen. And by the way, the priest would also have a rope tied to his leg. You might know this, some of you. He would have a rope tied around his ankle. And with the other end, at the hands of people that were in the outer courts, who would then pull him out if he happened to fall dead before a holy God due to his lack of correct preparation, not just outwardly, but also inwardly. God was not messing around. Sin and forgiveness of sin is a serious business that we should never take lightly, church. 
Next came the presentation of the sacrifices. The covering for sin was a blood sacrifice of an innocent animal. Have you ever wondered why God demanded blood? It seems a little icky, doesn't it? Leviticus 11, 17, 11 explains why God demands blood. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement, or there it is again, the covering for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement. It is the blood that provides the covering for one's life. God requires the shed blood of an innocent one to take care of the covering and the atonement for the guilty. That's his rule, not mine. Now, we many times think that other sorts of things like sweat or tears would do the trick. God, why wouldn't you forgive me and why can't I go to heaven? I'm emotional enough and I'm working hard enough. But folks, things like sweat and tears speak of works and they speak of emotions which can never ever cover your sin. We can all cry all we want to and we can all work all we want to as hard as we can to earn salvation. But atonement, God's covering, isn't earned or even deserved. But it is granted, but only after God's justice has been satisfied, which demands payment for sin. And that payment is the shed blood of an innocent, spotless sacrifice. Remember, I don't know if you remember in Genesis where Adam and Eve were naked after they sinned. And what did God provide for them to cover them? An animal skin. Where did that animal skin come from? An animal. How did that animal get that skin or how did God get that skin? He had to sacrifice that animal, that innocent animal. That animal didn't cause the sin. That animal didn't make that decision. But God had to kill that animal so that he could provide covering for Adam and for Eve. Since life is in the blood, the sacrifice for sin must be a blood sacrifice. And Yom Kippur required an increase in animal sacrifices. Besides the regular daily offerings, other offerings were made as well. These included a bull, a ram, seven lambs for the people, and a ram for the priesthood. And you can read about it in Numbers chapter 29. I'm not going to go into the details of it today. Now, these sacrifices were an atonement. They were a covering. Say the word with me again, covering. Covering for the previous year's sins of the entire nation. So we have this thorough preparation of the priest. We have this presentation of the sacrifices. It leads us now to the place of the scapegoat. Let's... let's Find out a little bit what this scapegoat is all about. Now, the Yom Kippur service featured two goats. They were identical in size, they were identical in color, and they were identical in value. Two lots were placed in a golden vessel, kind of like a lottery. One was inscribed for Yahweh, and the other was inscribed for Azazel. The high priest would shook the vessel and then randomly took out one in each hand, and he held them to the goat's foreheads to determine the outcome. He declared them a sin offering, both of them, to the Lord. The two goats were viewed together as one singular offering. But the Azazel, by the way, Azazel comes from the word Azel, which means escape. That is why it's called the scapegoat, the escape goat, the scapegoat. Because it escaped death and was driven into the wilderness. That that was labeled as Azel, or Azazel, was then taken, the, the priest would lay hands on that goat's head, 
confessing the people's sins, and then the scapegoat was then led through the eastern gate more than about 10 miles into the wilderness, and the goat determined for Yahweh was then offered as a sin sacrifice. While the scapegoat was taken into the wilderness and the people waited a word that has been accomplished, the service continued, and the high priest finished the sacrificing of the bull and the goat on the altar. And then he addressed the people, and he verified all the commands that had been carried out. And finally, the remaining offerings for Yom Kippur were offered. He then bathed for the fifth time, and he changed into his regular golden garments. He would then perform the regular evening service, and Yom Kippur ended. So as you can see, and I'm so thankful we don't do this anymore as you're sitting here thinking wow what an involved process this was not a celebratory feast at all they were not gathered together breaking bread and partying but they were very seriously somber in the understanding that my sin and your sin and the sin of the nation is being offered to god the father yahweh and we got to take this very seriously today it was a day of repentance it was a day of a covering before a merciful and holy God. So let's look at the prophetic significance now of this day as it relates to how everything I believe in God's word is points us to Jesus Christ. These feasts are very much so pointing us to Jesus Christ. How so the day of atonement? I think you kind of already hear this and how I described it in the practical, but let's look at that just a little bit. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter four, verses 15 and 16. I'm sorry, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. We read this. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, keep this in mind. Now, Jesus is our great high priest. The high priest that was a man did this every year. But now Jesus has become our great high priest. So keep that in mind as you're reading this. Who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess, for we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to empathize, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. He knows exactly the temptations and the struggles that we face. Aren't you thankful? And yet he didn't give in. He didn't sin. And therefore, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. How many is in a time of need this morning? Raise your hand. Well, you've come to the right place. Because you see, this is so important to us as believers today. Because Jesus lived a sinless life, but not without temptations, yet he overcame those temptations and he presented himself before God on the day of his crucifixion as a sinless sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice, he died in my place. He died in your place. A once and for all perfect sacrifice. The innocent blood was shed for the guilty of us all. That's why we don't need to be afraid to come boldly and confidently before God's throne of grace. Don't you dare cower down and say, I don't know, God. Hey, listen, you come on. Because you're covered by the blood. Not arrogantly, but boldly. Not, not proudly, but confidently. Because you're covered. You're covered. You're atoned for. You're covered by the perfect sacrifice and the blood of Jesus Christ. So you can come before God and he doesn't see your guilt. He doesn't see your sin. He sees the blood of Jesus. 
And that's why you can say, God, hey, Daddy, God, can I sit on your lap? He says, hop on. Now, what can I do for you? How can I love on you? How can I comfort you? Let's have some talk, some communion. Let's have some fellowship. Isn't that good to know you can dump, jump on your daddy God's lap? I mean, Santa Claus ain't got nothing on him. Because when you do and you come boldly before the throne of grace and all you may be worried about this. So I don't know about this. Jesus is simply just step in there saying, listen, because Jesus is seated at the right, seated at the right hand of his father, right? Making intercession for us, right? You've heard that? So that's, I can just picture this as we come before God's throne into God's presence. I can see Jesus stepping up and saying, uh, God, I got this. You see, he's covered by the blood. He's covered by the blood. She's covered by the blood. I, I, I've got this. I've got you. And he said to us, I got you covered. I got you covered. Turn to someone and say, Jesus has got me covered. You see, God doesn't see our sin anymore. He only sees Jesus' blood covering us. And... When Satan reminds you of your past sins, remember what I'm saying here today and stand in the fact that you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and your sins are no more. Church, you're clean. You're forgiven. You're covered. And Satan hates this. But I love it. It's not by our sweat of hard work. It's not by our tears of emotions. You can be sorry all you want to, and you can work as hard as you want to. Nothing earned here, but by the blood of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, are we saved? And are we covered? And that way we can enter into the holy of holies with confidence. Aren't you thankful this morning? If you are, let me hear you say, praise the Lord. The symbol of the red heifer, by the way, it prophetically also points us to the sacrifice of Jesus for the believer's sins. You can read about this red heifer in Numbers chapter 19. In fact, if you're into prophecy and, uh, and modern day prophecy where we are right now, there's a lot of priests and people in Israel that continue looking for a red, a red heifer because they feel like the Messiah is coming just any moment. Not Jesus the Messiah. They've denied him. They think the Messiah has yet to come. And so they're getting the, the, this red heifer ready so that he can be uh, sacrificed before the great, their great high priest, who we know is Jesus, but they don't know yet, but they will. But they're looking that up right now. They're looking for a perfect red heifer. Numbers chapter 19 says that that red heifer was to be without blemish. It was to be killed outside the camp. And its ashes were to be sprinkled. It's an act of cleansing people from the contamination of their sins. Now, prophetically, the Lord Jesus was without blemish, just like the red heifer, right? Jesus was also sacrificed outside the camp, wasn't he? Golgotha, outside of the city of Jerusalem, just like the red heifer. And also, the cleansing of the blood of Jesus washes us clean. He sprinkles us. He covers us with his blood and saves us from the penalty and the corruption of death, just like the sprinkling of the ashes of the heifer were an act of cleansing for the people. See, see, you can just overlay so many things in God's word prophetically and how everything points back to Jesus. So here's the next thing. This feast points us to the eternal sacrifice of our Savior. The day of atonement was for the previous year's sins, but not so with our Savior's sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all and for all of eternity. Amen? Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12 and verse 14 says that the earthly priests stand and ministers before the altar day after day offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away any sins. But our high priest, Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, 
good for all time. Say all time. For by that one offering, he forever, say forever, made perfect those who are being made holy. And that being made holy, by the way, is this act of sanctification. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12 and verses 14. Uh, if you want to write that down, I, I don't know why it didn't end up on the screen, but I want you to write that down. This is a very important scripture. You can look it up later. You see, a priest can't save you. I know some of you are former Catholics, or maybe you're Pentecostal Catholics, maybe you're still current Catholics, but you're believers in Jesus, whatever you want to call yourself. But those of you who've ever gone to a church where you made your confessions before a priest, a priest can't save you. By the way, I can't save you. You can't save you. Nobody can save you. No one on this earth can save you. Only Jesus can save you. Yeah. Romans 5, 19 says, for just as through the disobedience of one man, who was that disobedience of one man? Who was it? Adam. So just as that disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, that's us. So also through the obedience of one man, who was that one man? Jesus. The many will be made righteous. Hallelujah. It, it, this, the third thing, it points us to the sinfulness of us as human beings. You've heard the phrase, Christians aren't perfect, just what? Just forgiven. Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven, right? You've heard that before? It illustrates, also, that's actually the scapegoat. That illustrates, illustrates the scapegoat. It's freed by the sacrifice of another, but the high priest still had to lay hands on that scapegoat and confess the sins of the people. In other words, though we're forgiven, we're still guilty. A scapegoat refers to someone being blamed for the actions of another. Today, it's usually some, something, someone that I have blamed for the wrong action that I've taken. I did something wrong, but Jane, it's your fault. And you're just going to have to deal with it. And by the way, we laugh, but we live in a very woke time, don't we? And by the way, there's a lot of people that are canceling other people out today, huh? If, they don't, if you don't align with their beliefs, you're canceled. And as part of this wokeness, those that subscribe to this way of thinking will do all that they can to blame others for their own actions. Very few choose to take ownership of their actions. It'll always be, it's always been so much more easier, by the way, to deflect the spotlight of fault and wrong away from us and point it towards others, hasn't it? This, this may seem like a new tactic, by the way, this woke culture that's going on. It's not a new tactic. It's as old as the first man and the first woman that God created. Where Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent, for their disobedient choices. It's just been repackaged with new labels of woke and cancel, but there's really nothing new under the sun, the Bible says, and it's true. I encourage you, by the way, to reject this insipid, divisive way of thinking for what it is. It's the latest tool of Satan to steal and to kill and to destroy. This scapegoat on this day of atonement represents you and me. All of us are sinners who are to blame for the compassionate action God took. When he came to the earth in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, the innocent one who died in our place so that we who are guilty might go free. We're all sinners. Saved by grace. Period. Fourth thing, it points us to the complete redemption of God's people. On the day of atonement, the sins of the entire nation were covered. One day, the complete number of those who have received Christ's atonement, his covering, 
in the new covenant he established will be complete. Those who are of faith in this new covenant are what the Apostle Paul refers to in Galatians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16 as the Israel of God. The Israel of God. I'm going to read this to you. It says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. In other words, neither Jew or Gentile, neither the old covenant or the new covenant. But what counts is the new creation. This new covenant of salvation through faith in Jesus. It's not by your sweat. It's not by your tears. It's simply in putting your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Peace and mercy, he says, to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. So those of us who are in this new covenant, who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, who are dependent only on his covering, on his atonement, have become the Israel of God. Jews and Gentiles alike are all covered under this one new category. We are the Israel of God. I want you to turn to someone and say, I am the Israel of God. Yeah, see, it's not just Abraham's chosen people. It's not just the Jewish bloodline. We are all, as believers, the Israel of God. Romans 9, verses 6 and 7 says, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children, you see. They're not saved just because they have the, the, the Abraham's blood running through them, that Jewish lineage. Instead, it says in Galatians 3, 7, those who believe in Christ the Messiah in the new covenant, they are children of Abraham. You're a child of Abraham because you're a believer in Christ. During this current church age, of which I believe it's getting ready to end, from birth from the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2 to the rapture of the church, which could happen today, the Holy Spirit's efforts to point people to Christ are through his church, you and I, also to the Jews and the Gentiles alike. We can lead the Jewish people and the Gentile people to Christ equally. The Holy Spirit wants to use us to minister to both of those categories, if you want to call them that. But after the rapture and during the seven-year tribulation, if you read it in the book of Revelation, chapter 7 and 14, God is going to turn his attention more exclusively to his chosen people, the Jews. Before the second coming of Christ, during the tribulation, there's going to be this tremendous revival, actually, that's going to be among the Jews. It's going to result in many people coming to Jesus Christ. Revelation 7 and 14 talks about these 144,000 Jewish evangelists set aside with a special mark who won't be hindered by Satan, and they'll be able to go out into the world and minister uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God's going to protect them from death. And they're going to go throughout the, uh, the world preaching to God's chosen people about Jesus. And revival is going to break out during the tribulation among the Jews as God focuses his attention of revealing Christ as the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Zechariah 13.9 says that they will call on my name, talking about his chosen people. And I will answer them, and I will say, these are my people, and they will say, the Lord Jesus is our God. Zechariah 2.11 describes the end, of this great, uh, end, the end result of this great tribulation of revival of his chosen people who will be joining other believers from every nation, all of us, from every tribe and every tongue. And it says, many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people, the Israel of God. This will be what heaven is going to be like, by the way. Heaven is not going to have any segregation of races. There's not going to be any ethnicities. We will all be one in Christ and presented to God 
as a beautiful tapestry of colors and flavors from all over the world, from every generation, past and present. All glorifying God and praising God for his merciful rescue and compassionate kindness through his son, Jesus Christ, all with one thing in common. We will all be covered by the blood of Jesus. And that's it. And what a day that will be. I want you to turn and look around at the beautiful tapestry that this is just a snapshot of what God has prepared for us. Every color, every shade, every, every ethnicity, every tribe and every tongue is going to be presented for, before God the Father by Jesus Christ and says, here, here's your bride. Here you go. And it's going to be a, you ever seen a beautiful quilt? It's all big, one beautiful thing, but it's like tiny pieces all put together. That's how we're going to be for Jesus Christ before God. Can't wait. The fifth thing, it points to the ultimate deliverance of God's people. We're saved from sin's penalty, just like the scapegoat. But also like the scapegoat, we still wander in the wilderness of this world. We're in this world, but not of it. But let's remember, like we talked about last week, the lesson from the Feast of Trumpets. The shofar that we heard blown last week was used on the Day of Atonement to announce the year of Jubilee. Leviticus 25, verses 9 and 10 says, Then have the shofar trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. There's this trumpet that's going to sound. It's this this proclamation throughout the land. And then consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. There's going to be an ultimate deliverance that's going to take place in our lives when that trumpet sounds. On that ultimate day of atonement. The year of jubilee, by the way, if you're not sure what that is. It's when all the slaves, it's every 50 years, when all the slaves were freed, all the debts were forgiven, and all the lands were returned to the original owners. Everything was set back to how it was before people messed things up. (laughs) When Jesus returns, Jesus is going to set things back to how they were before we messed them up. (laughs) What once was will be again. This giant arc of human history that I talked about last week is going to culminate where it all began, except there's going to be one significant exception. God will again dwell in the midst of a sinless, perfect place that he is preparing for us called heaven, but only the serpent will not be there. That's the exception. Old Satan won't be there. He's not allowed in. Satan will be otherwise detained, as they say. Because Jesus is going to have him bound and thrown into this bottomless pit forever and ever and ever. Folks, as they say in this generation, he gone. Turn to someone and say, he gone. See, you get that. Some of you get that. Someone's like, that's that's not even grammatically correct. But you get it. He gone. I can't wait until he gone. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, so that he be gone, right? Mm. All right. <laughs> so let's, let's, just, let's just start to land this plane here, and Emma, if you would. What's the personal significance to us today on this Day of Atonement? Say it one more time. Say, he gone. Yeah, I just love that. Okay. There's two things here about the, how we can make this personal for us here today. Because these are not just feasts to have feasts, and that's what the Jews do. In the New Covenant, we are the priests of God, right? And so the personal significance here is, folks, just like the priest had to 
wash himself constantly and get himself prepared a week before and wash his hands and his face and get in that golden bath and all that and tie a rope around his ankle if, that, if, if he wasn't doing the right way. Folks, there's got to be a holiness in our lives today. A holiness. We've got to be holy before the Lord today. Now, we're never going to be perfect before the Lord because remember, he talked about sanctifying us. Sanctifying simply means that where we are and where we need to be is a space here. It's called a journey. He walks with us. Now, some of us used to be here, but now we're here. But we still need to be here, right? And that's probably all of us. But thank God for the journey. And thank God that he's still working on us, right? He's sanctifying us. He's, he's working all that stuff out of us that doesn't need to be there. Life lessons, just, you know, situations in our life where we just say, Lord, I, I have nowhere else to turn but you. And I trust in you. I'm thankful for that covering that he's given us throughout our lives, but he's also sanctifying us. He's making us like Christ. The Holy Spirit is making us like Jesus in the words that we say, in our thoughts that we think, in our actions, in our decisions, all the stuff that's inside. And we can look all good on the outside. And by the way, I'll just say this as I'm looking at everybody. You guys clean up great. But inside, that's between you and the Lord. And I have no idea what's going on. But God does. And he's here to say, let me help you. Let me sanctify you. Let me work in you more of Jesus and less of the world. Like we sang this morning, I don't want anyone else. I don't need anything else. You are my one thing. Because when it's all said and done, that one thing remains is him. That's the only question that God's going to ask you this morning when you stand before him one day is, what did you do with my son? That's the one thing. Man, I, I served him with all of my heart. I pressed in. I, I allowed him to work in me his fruit and his qualities and his personality traits. I, I gave myself and surrendered to him. I died to myself daily. I took up my cross as best as I knew how. I placed my faith in his finished work and I'm covered by the spotless lamb of God. That's what would be a beautiful thing for us to say, but I'm afraid there's a lot of Christians that are going to say, well, I, I don't know. I probably could have done better. I kind of punched in a Sunday morning time clock every once in a while and I tried to be careful not to swear too much and I gave a dollar in the offering every once in a while and I tried to be kind to people as much as I could unless they were mean to me and then I let them have it. But, you know, I just, I did the best I could. And uh, Again, it's between you and the Lord. And, and the criteria, again, is none of us are going to be perfect because we're still going to follow people out, aren't we? <laughs> we're still going to lose our temper, aren't we? We're still going to be selfish, aren't we? We're still going to do stupid things. We're going to let a word slip. I get it. God gets it. And he's not looking for perfection. He's just looking for us to lean in and to be holy as he is holy. And he'll help us with that as we go along in our daily walk with him. First Peter 2.9 says that you're a chosen people. You and I are a royal priesthood. There it is. The Old Testament priests. We are now the New Testament priests. That's one of the scriptures that talks about that. We're a royal priesthood. We're, we're a holy nation. We're God's special possession. That we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are to be holy as Jesus is holy. But we can't do this in our own strength. Again, it's not the sweat of our works or the tears of our emotions 
that will get us to that place. But it's only by the blood of Jesus that we're saved. And once we place our faith in him, it's the Holy Spirit working in us to make us more like Jesus. He sanctifies. He makes us holy. We will never be perfectly holy until we live outside of our earthly bodies in a place called heaven. But we are called to yield. Remember we talked about it last week? Yielding, yielding, yielding. We are called to yield to the Holy Spirit's influence and allow Him to make us holy, to make us like Christ. It's just a little more today than yesterday. That's kind of the goal of it. As the priests of the Old Testament represented the people to God and God to people on the Day of Atonement, we're also called to do the same in the New Testament covenant as priests of God through our times of prayer, through our lifestyle choices, through the witnessing of other, to others. So that others might experience their own personal day of atonement. How many is thankful that you've experienced a day of atonement in your life with Jesus Christ? Amen. I want you to say one more thing with me. Say, I am a New Testament priest of God. What does that mean? What does that mean to you today? What does that mean to you today? As the Old Testament priests took their task very seriously, may we as New Testament priests do the same. Amen. That holiness that he requires of us. Second, salvation is something to receive because it's already been achieved. How many of those are the pastor Rick Warren? You ever heard of, heard of him, Rick Warren, Saddleback Church? A man came up to Rick Warren one day, Pastor Rick Warren, and said, Pastor Rick, what can I do to be saved? His response was, you're too late. That kind of shocked the man. He said, in fact, you're about 2,000 years too late. He says, because what needed to be done for your salvation has already been done, and you can't do anything about it. It's a good answer. Kind of a roundabout way of saying, you don't have to do anything, but he kind of startled him with that. See, we don't get right with God based on what we do, our sweat and our tears, but only on what Jesus has done. It's not do, do, do. It's done, 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 as it relates to our relationship with God. We accept Christ and experience our own day of atonement by being made at one with God. And by the way, if you take the word atonement and you divide it up at one-ment, that's really what it is, is we're becoming at one moment with God when we receive him as our Lord and Savior. It's this covering of this perfect, spotless, sinless sacrifice of Jesus that gives us bold and constant access to the Holy of Holies. We are at one again with God. We're, we're no longer separated by our sins, but we're reconciled to him by Jesus' blood. And it's in this relationship that we can discover, that you today can discover your, and fulfill also your destiny in Christ as we walk with him, as we yield to the Holy Spirit more fully every day. That's my goal. How about you? And by the way, in the spirit of thanksgiving, let's be thankful today. Let's be thankful today for the shed blood of Jesus. Amen. Let's be thankful today for his atonement that covers us and restores us back to right relationship with God the Father. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Father God, we, we thank you for this day of atonement and what it signifies in our lives. What it signifies in us personally. We, we, we read about what they did in Leviticus, which you were asking of them this sober day where... <laughs> Every year they had to do this. What an involved, detailed, it seems to be tedious task, but 
Father, we see the importance of it because you take sin seriously. And yet here we are thousands of years later on the backside of your grace, on the backside, Jesus, of your finished work. And while they took it very seriously back then, Lord, is it possible that we kind of cheapen it on this end? Because we don't have to go through all of those rituals and all of that cleansing and be so serious about it, do we can tend to actually treat it more cavalierly and flippantly? Forgive us if that's the case. Father, help us to understand that we are New Testament priests. We are a royal priesthood. And as they took it seriously and 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 pressed in and, and was very careful careful to be holy before you. Lord, may we do the same, but help us to realize that it's not by our acts. It's not by our sweat and tears. Lord, we rest in the finished work that you've done for us. We're covered by your blood, but let's, let us know, Lord God, that we wouldn't cheapen your blood, that we wouldn't cheapen your sacrifice, that we wouldn't take it for granted or treat it lightly. Help us to be holy as you're holy. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. We yield to you, Holy Spirit, to come and work in our lives with our tongues and our thoughts and our actions and our passions and our relationships and our possessions and our abilities and, and our everything about us, Lord God. We yield to you. We give you access. Won't you do in our lives what needs to be done so that you could sanctify us a little more today than we were yesterday. More like Christ today, a little more than we were yesterday. Thank you, Jesus, for your perfect sinless sacrifice that covers our guilt that atones us and makes us at one again with God the Father because of what you've done, Jesus, and only what you've done. We are still guilty of our sins, but you've taken the punishment of those sins upon yourself, and then you've covered us with your blood. We don't deserve any of this. When we think about it, we've totally messed up, and yet you said, okay, I'll take care of it. And then you not only have taken care of it, then you said, no, let me just lead you to the throne where you can make, where you can have a relationship back to God the Father. What do you get out of this? I mean, in our human evaluation, we like to do this sort of exchange of stuff and we think, well, okay, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do some trade here and I'm going to walk away with some benefit, but then so is the other person. But we don't see where you're benefiting from this. What a selfless act of love. We thank you that everything that you've done has been completely to benefit us. You gave your life for us. And you've earned nothing except scars in your body for it. And we're so grateful, Jesus. Father, may we be holy as your holy. And for those of us who maybe are here today, Lord, that don't know you, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you draw them in and let them understand, maybe for the first time in their life, I don't know, of what you've actually done for us. In fact, with every eye closed and head bowed, I pray that you would right now, for those that are listening and viewing here online as well, if something is resonating in your spirit right now, and you're, having a, you're feeling a tugging and a drawing, folks, that, that's the Holy Spirit. He is right there lovingly drawing you in, saying, how about, how about letting what pastor just preached about 
happen to you that you can have your personal day of atonement and at one with God through the covering and the finished work of Jesus Christ. If that's you today, I want to just invite you to lift up again and say, Pastor, I need Jesus in my life. I need to be covered by the blood of Jesus. I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. I, I, I've had enough of this spinning my wheels and living for myself. Just lift up your hand and put it right back down and we'll pray together. Anybody at all? Anybody at all? Anybody at home? Just lift up your hand wherever you are in your living room or whatever. God sees that hand. I mean, He knows. He knows your heart. I want us to all pray this prayer out loud together whether you raised your hand or not. And just let's just pray a prayer of salvation right now. I said, Jesus, I thank you for your covering, for your sacrifice, for the atonement that you made for me to God the Father through your perfect, spotless, sinless sacrifice. I offer myself to you. Forgive me of my sins. Cover me with your blood. Cleanse me of my sins and restore me to right relationship to God the Father. My day of atonement is today. I thank you, Jesus, that I'm now saved. In Jesus' name, I pray. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would flood our minds, our hearts, our spirits, our emotions, everything about us. Won't you, Lord Jesus, Help us to yield to you as we enter into this time of Thanksgiving where it's going to be so busy. There'll be a lot of stress. And Thanksgiving will just catapult us into the Christmas season. I pray that we would look back on this five weeks from now and say, where did those five weeks go? What just happened? And I'm so glad it's over with. Instead, Lord God, I pray that you'd help us to take the moments that are there to love on our families and our friends and to others that are stressed out trying to get things ready and all the shopping and the hustle and bustle of the season or that we would be a calm in the midst of the storm a peace to them speak into their lives hope to them joy to them all of that being through you lord jesus where you provide those things we love you and we thank you for this time we thank you for the day of atonement and for your sacrifice for our sins, Jesus, for your blood that saves us today. We love you and ask these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. How many is thankful for the blood of Jesus today? If you are, let's give God a praise.